with me to Matthew chapter 16. And as you turn there, you may have had your thumb in Colossians already. We've been walking through the book of Colossians together. We're going to pick back up in the book of Colossians next week, um, as is our habit to just walk through books of the Bible. We're going to take a one-week break uh, this morning, and, um, and then we'll be back in the book of Colossians next week. And as you turn there, I do, I do just want to note, you may have noticed uh, in, in recent weeks that we've been, uh, for some of our readings, um, using a different translation of, of Scripture. Um, and, and we've been wrestling with this for a while as leaders and just uh, wanted to let you know that uh, I'm going to begin to preach consistently from uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a newer version of Scripture. Um, uh, so if you have your ESV Bible, that's great. We love the ESV. The ESV is a fantastic version. If you have the NIV, we love the NIV. The NIV is a great version. Um, but we really like the CSB the more that we've interacted with it. Uh, we think it really gets at the heart of the original languages, but it puts it in very plain easy to understand language. And so for those reasons, um, we're making the move. So I'll, I'll be preaching this morning from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, again, we, we love the ESV. We love the NIV. If, if you're using those versions or another version, this isn't uh, to tell you that you need to go get a new Bible, but Christmas is around the corner. And so I uh, wanted to give you the heads up before Christmas. So if you want to ask for a new Bible for Christmas, I'm letting you know now that we're, we're making the move. So um, Matthew chapter 16, we will read um, in just a minute from God's word. Uh, but this morning, we're going we're gonna to delve into the dangerous topic of politics. Uh, some of you just got really nervous. Our nation is divided politically. I don't know if you've, you've noticed that. It's, it's divided more than it perhaps ever has been. In fact, uh, a University of Maryland uh, poll found that seven out of ten Americans believe that the nation's political divisions are as bad or worse uh, than the time of the Vietnam War. My Facebook feed reveals to me that I have relatives and friends on both sides of the political aisle who vehemently disagree with one another and let each other know. Right? There's constant back and forth engagement on social media. Some of my friends identify strongly with, with certain causes. Others identify strongly with, with other causes. Some see things one way. Others see it completely differently. The recent uh, accusations and subsequent uh, Senate Judiciary hearing with Supreme Court Justice nominee now voted and confirmed Judge Kavanaugh highlights this reality. As I've kind of watched things unfold, boy, there have been polarizing positions taken across the political aisle. And frankly, for me, it's exhausting. Um, our vision as a church from day one has been to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. That has been our vision. That will be our vision. We are committed to building a community from all cultures where Christ is king. That is our commitment as a church. But if I can be transparent with you, I underestimated how much of a challenge it would be as a pastor to pastor a church that is pursuing a multicultural expression of the body of Christ, particularly when it comes to politics. I underestimated that. I was naive about how challenging it might be to aim for diversity, to aim for being a multicultural church when it comes to politics. Depending upon your upbringing and your influences, you likely identify more with one political party than the other, uh, at least speaking of the 
two major parties, which means that we have inside of our church family members, because we're family, right? We're a diverse family of disciples. We have family members who find themselves in very different places politically, who have very different political leanings. And for many of us, on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the divide, we have likely been taught that the party with which we more closely align is the party that Jesus would endorse. I've heard it suggested that the only real choice for Christians is to vote Republican, and I've heard it suggested that the only real choice for Christians is to vote Democrat. In a recent New York Times article, Pastor Tim Keller says that Christians are pushed to assimilate and to fully adopt one party's whole package. And so this morning, we're going to dive into this ever so dangerous topic of politics. And I realize I'm crazy, but I think this is something that needs to be addressed because of our cultural moment. And I think we need a reminder, ultimately, of who our ultimate allegiance is to and where our hope is ultimately found so that we can make sense of this madness that is the current state of our country's political circus of tribalism and and polarization. And so I want to give a disclaimer if you're you're nervous about what's about to ensue. um, this, This sermon is not going to tell you who to vote for or which party to affiliate with. Rather, what I want to do is suggest to us that we might need to reframe our hope for change and adopt a new paradigm for how change comes. So if you're with me in Matthew 16, let's read together for a few minutes, and then we'll dive in discussing this passage. We're going to begin in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. God's word says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say also to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the word of the Lord. 
The first century world was very different than our own. They didn't have a democratic system of government or more specifically a, a representative republic. Back then, what they had was dictatorship. They had kings who tended to run the show. And in the first century, the Romans ruled the world with Emperor Caesar at the helm. And, and Caesar was ruler over the world. And as a result, the people of Israel longed for freedom. They were, they were not a people who lived in freedom. Israel longed for rescue. They longed for the promises God had made to them long ago to be fulfilled, to, to once again be a nation of prosperity and of power. And so when Jesus begins his earthly ministry by declaring, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. This kind of talk was loaded with meaning. It's loaded with meaning. Matthew called this the gospel of the kingdom. And it unavoidably had political overtones. This, this was political language. A, a gospel sent out in the first century was an important announcement related to the king. And so for Jesus to begin announcing a gospel, that God's kingdom had arrived, was to simultaneously be putting every other king on notice. He was saying that a new king had entered onto the scene. N.T. Wright says that an announcement like this isn't simply a proclamation, it's the start of a campaign. Jesus is inserting himself as Israel's long-awaited king. He's telling everyone, the ruler that you've been waiting for has finally arrived. The time has finally come for God to fulfill his promises and to send Israel its long-awaited rescuer. And alongside of this announcement, Jesus begins to call some people to follow him. He begins to call disciples and say to them, follow me. And in our passage, the disciples have now been traveling with Jesus for some time. They've been watching Jesus, listening to, to Jesus. They, they've watched him do ministry. They've listened to him teach. They've learned his ways. They've seen him perform miracles. And now he turns to them and he asks, asks them, what are people saying about me? Who are people saying that I am? And there are different responses to this. And then Jesus presses further. He wants to make it personal. Who do you say that I am? Jesus, by the way, wants to do this with all of us. He wants each one of us to answer that question. He wants to know from each one of us, who do you say that I am? But Peter here answers, speaking on behalf of the disciples, and Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. This word Christ, this word Messiah is, is a loaded statement. Messiah means anointed one or smeared one. And in, the, in ancient Israel, the king and the high priest were anointed ones. In the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, this idea of a future coming Messiah begins to take shape. Isaiah and Jeremiah, these, these prophets of Israel, begin to point forward to a, to a time in Israel's future when, when this individual would come and he would fill the throne of his father David, where he would rule over Israel in righteousness and he would usher in peace 
to God's people. Jesus, on one occasion in, in the Gospel of Luke, where it's recorded that Jesus went to the synagogue and, and opens up the scroll of Isaiah and begins to read from Isaiah 61 and, and say, the, 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 uh, the Spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set free those who were in prison in Zion. And Jesus closes the scroll and says, I, I tell you the truth, to, in today's hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. He says, I am the long-awaited one from Isaiah 61. I am the one, I'm the spirit of the Lord anointed with God's spirit. Peter's confession here that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is chock full of meaning and significance. It is to say, Jesus, you are the king we've been waiting for. We believe in your gospel. We believe in you. And it's also to say, Herod is not our king. See, the Jews at that time, they had a puppet king named Herod. And so to confess Jesus as the Christ is to say, we're not trusting in Herod. To confess Jesus as the Christ is to say, we're not trusting in our religious leaders. We're not trusting in the Pharisees to get us where we need to go. We're not trusting in the Sadducees to get us where we need to go. Jesus, we're trusting in you. My hope is fixed on you. Jesus, you are my king. It's an incredibly political statement. Because it's a statement of alignment and allegiance. It's a statement that rejects any other leader for the hope of change. It's placing all of your hope on Jesus. I don't know if you guys remember, but back in 2008, Barack Obama ran his campaign on this idea of change we can believe in. It was powerful, powerful campaign rhetoric because we all long for change. We're looking around and going, man, this nation is not as it should be. There are all kinds of, of problems. We want something changed. We want something done about it. We want change we can believe in. Mike Cosper writes that we're left with the vague sense that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And we have a desire to see it made right. That, and that energy gets channeled into all kinds of human effort and movements. Most powerfully, that energy emerges in a soaring rhetoric of politicians who offer the hope of renewal and restoration. And if you allow yourself to believe the rhetoric, you'll believe that change can happen overnight if we can just elect the right person. In spite of our cynicism, an idealistic streak remains. We're simultaneously skeptics and true believers because we know something's wrong with the world and we believe the right leader, the right king could fix it. Richard Lovelace says, in the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if, the, if only the right ruler would come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. And it's into that madness, says Cosper, that comes Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus shows up declaring the good news of a new kingdom that had arrived, and he began to call people everywhere to repent and to believe in this good news, to turn from placing their hopes in anyone else or anything else, any other system, any other rulers, and to place their hopes squarely upon him. And so here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking the question, fellas, do you truly believe in me? Do you truly believe that I'm the one that can fix all of this? And Peter says, yes, Lord. We believe you. We believe you're the Christ, the Son of God. We believe you're the one we've been waiting for. You are the ruler we need. You are the only one that can truly fix all of this and make it right. And Jesus would aim to 
place that same question in front of each one of us. He asks us, what about you? What do you think? Where does your hope fundamentally rest for the change you long to see happen? So if I were to ask you that question, what one thing, what one thing fundamentally would help our nation the most? How would you answer that, honestly? How would the way that you've spent the last week interacting on social media or on websites or on news channels reveal that you would answer that question? There are all kinds of things that come to my mind that I would want to fix, like term limits or a cap on congressional salaries or lobbying reform or just an end to the two-party system. But Jesus steps into our political chaos just as he did in the first century, and he inserts himself as a better solution to the problem. He proclaims the good news to us just as he did to them. The time has come and the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus invites us to cast our hope upon him, to turn. That's what it means to repent. Turn from trusting or placing your hope for our country in a political party and to place our hope on him. Jesus wants us to vote for him. To trust in him more than a Supreme Court justice appointment or a Senate majority or a president. Jesus invites us to declare with Peter, you are the Christ, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the one we need. You're our rescuer. You're our hope. See, Jesus didn't come just to declare himself to be Lord over our lives individually. He came to declare himself as Lord over all. He is the better leader, the better political party, the better hope for our nation. And that might sound cliche to you, but consider with me for a minute where you tend to focus your energy for change. We likely spend more time listening to pundits, debating on Facebook, than we do praying in our prayer closets. And that says something about us deep down, about what we believe God's kingdom is about and how it's going to come. Did you notice in this passage that although Peter gets the right candidate, he's totally confused about what it means? Look at verse 21. It says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised on the third day. And what does Peter do? No, no, Jesus, you're not going to die. You're going to the throne. And I'm going with you. I'm riding these coattails. What does Jesus say to Peter? Peter, the way that you're talking right now sounds like the devil. That Jesus was king, Peter was exactly right. But the kind of king Jesus came to be was nowhere on Peter's radar. Listen to how one pastor explains it. He says, Peter had always been told that when the Messiah came, he would defeat evil and injustice by ascending the throne. But here Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, the king, but I came not to live, but to die. I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm not here to rule, but to serve. 
And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. Jesus is the king, but he's a king headed to a cross. And this is absolutely perplexing to Peter. There, there are numerous occasions in the Gospels, it's fascinating, where Jesus, he'll perform a miracle or he'll preach. It actually happens in this passage as well. And, and the crowd, after they see the miracle or after they hear Jesus speak, they want to take Jesus by force straight to Jerusalem and crown him as king. And every time Jesus turns around and says, in effect, to the crowd, no, no, you don't understand it all. The crowd wanted Jesus to take on the Roman Empire. But Jesus didn't come, come to take on the Romans. He came to take on a much larger enemy. He came to take on sin and death. And while people believed that their greatest threats were physical, Jesus came to wage a spiritual war against a spiritual enemy. And while Peter envisioned a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans, take Jerusalem, ascend a throne, and give power to those who stood with him, Jesus envisioned overthrowing the tyranny of Adam's race by giving up his very own life and then rising from the dead. Peter wanted an immediate kingdom taken by force, but Jesus wanted an eternal kingdom conquered by sacrificial love. And I think if we're honest, I think we relate a whole lot to Peter's desires. We, we tend to think a whole lot like Peter. We, we think that the way Christ's kingdom is going to advance is through immediate political power. We want to overthrow our modern-day Romes and invade the public sector. And we think that the way that the kingdom will advance in power is by getting the right people in office, by ascending. And our thought is that if we can just get the right leaders in place, the right programs in place, the right laws in place, if we can get power and enforce our agenda, we can win the day. We forget that the greatest issue facing our nation can't be legislated. It can't be attained through a program. The greatest issue in our country is a moral issue. It's a sin issue. We have hearts that are diseased and far from God. And that's a problem, by the way, that transcends party lines. It's not a Republican problem. It's not a Democrat problem. It's a human problem. And until God has changed our hearts, no amount of policy change or political turnover will fundamentally fix the issues of our nation. We, we, need, we need a reform that only God can bring. And the only way for God to bring it, the only for, way for him to address our core issue, our core problem was to send his son to be lifted up on a cross, not ascending a throne. The son of man did not come to be served, Jesus said, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' political platform. I've come to die. I've come to offer my life as a ransom. I've come to serve. I've come to wash feet. And this is how the early church grew. If, if you know anything about the early church, you know that the early church in the first couple centuries lived largely in the margins of society. They had virtually no identifiable power. It wasn't mainstream, and yet the kingdom of God advanced in power. You go back and read the book of Acts, and what you see is that uh, the, 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 the gospels proclaim Jesus is exalted, a crucified and risen, risen Messiah is exalted, and, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit is on them, and, and the, the kingdom is advancing. The, the church is growing, and though they didn't have government programs, the poor were cared for. 
Widows and orphans were loved. In fact, Acts 4 tells us that there was not a needy person among them, but that they had all things in common. People were sacrificially, generously giving to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They organize themselves to make sure that no one gets overlooked. In Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows are getting overlooked. You know what they do? They raise up men full of the Holy Spirit to oversee a program to make sure that the food distribution gets to everybody. And it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, Jesus can truly change communities because he can change hearts and then empower lives that get busy doing the work of the kingdom. We don't need the government for that. Now, I'm not anti-government. I'm just saying, when God gets a hold of the church, the government falls in behind the local church in doing the work of ministry. It wasn't until Emperor Constantine that Christianity became mainstream and simultaneously convoluted. What I'm pleading with you for this morning is that our world does not need an institutionalized Christianity. We need, as Russell Moore puts it, to make Christianity weird again. We don't so much need a march on Capitol Hill as much as we need Christ's kingdom to march into us. We need the rule and the reign of God in us. We need the message of his grace and his truth in our hearts and on our lips. This is how the world was turned upside down in the first century. And this is how the world will be turned upside down in the 21st century. And so Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, now that you know my campaign platform, now that you know what I'm about, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. Since he is a king on a cross, he calls us to embrace our cross as well. Pastor Keller says, taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to control of your own life, die to using him for your agenda. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is king. He says, you want to follow me? Fall in line, get your cross, let's go. And so we follow the way of Jesus by serving others and by pointing to his ransom on their behalf. We give our lives away to love and to bless and to serve. And on the surface, this may sound pathetic and cliche. It may feel insignificant. You may think it's way less powerful than, than overtaking D.C. But Jesus said that his kingdom comes like a mustard seed. He said it comes like leaven. It begins small. Mustard seeds are small, unnoticeable. The growth is hard to see. It feels like, man, I'm loving and I'm serving in my community and I'm, I'm trying to help my neighbors out and I'm, I'm, I'm investing in the local church and it doesn't seem like anything's happening, God. And it sure seems like we could expedite this process if we could just get to the top. Jesus said it starts small, but it grows so big that the Gentiles come and flock to that tree in Israel. Jesus said it's like leaven in bread. Small, doesn't seem like much is happening. And before you know it, the entire lump of dough has been leavened. This is how the kingdom will come in power. I used to think that what our nation needed was for, for like some big, like Tim Tebow to, you know, 
be given a bigger platform. That's kind of how we think as Christians. We think, man, we need, to, we need to get Tebow more publicity. Or if a rap star would just come to know Jesus, man, he could, he could affect the masses of teens in our nation. That's not how I think anymore. What our nation needs are, are normal Christians in everyday environments denying themselves, taking up their crosses, and living under the lordship of King Jesus and proclaiming the good news to their neighbors. This is how our nation will experience revival. You want our nation to change? It's through the cross. Russell Moore says, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we will understand that and recognize as important as a vote for president of the United States is. And it is. The vote that we take week by week in our congregations to recognize members of those congregations is more significant still. Because in those congregations, we say to the outside world, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, if you want to know who inherits the kingdom of God, look at us. What we are doing this morning, gathering together as an assembly of believers and singing to King Jesus, is more significant than going to your ballot box. This is a bigger vote that will bring greater change. And so my hope and my prayer for us as a people is that when people in Birmingham look at our church, they will see something peculiar indeed. They will see a diverse family of disciples united not by the politics of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, but united by the declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my desire is that they would see in us what they long to see in the city and that they would realize that the hope for Birmingham, the hope for our nation, is not ultimately in who holds office, but in who holds the universe together by the word of his power. Let's pray together. Lord, we tend to see things so upside down. We're reminded in Mark chapter 8 of that story of you healing that blind man. And how he saw, but he saw men as trees walking. He didn't see clearly. And that's such a picture of us. Sometimes we see, God. Jesus, we confess that you're the Christ, but we're totally confused about what that means for our lives or how your kingdom's going to come. So we pray that your spirit would help us. Help us to embrace the way of the cross. Help us to embrace humility and loving acts of service to our neighbors. Jesus, the way that you have washed our feet, the way that you have died for our sins, help us Help us to embrace that kind of life. That is how the kingdom will come in power. God, forgive us for trusting more in politics than in you. Lord, would you help us to calm down about all this stuff going on in Washington? Lord, we should be relaxed because, Jesus, you're on the throne. And you have promised and declared that the gates of hell will be pushed back and will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So God, God, help us to be about your kingdom. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness.
to make that our, our primary endeavor. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.